That's you. Trying to disguise yourself as a worker bee. That's you trying to blend in with hive. But you're not a worker bee. You're a renegade killer bee. Killer bee. Killer bee. Viceberg Slim. I will chop your heads off! Welcome to In Broad Daylight. A solo podcast with your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a very special post-Super Bowl in broad daylight. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. This is my solo podcast. I spit a little when I said that. It's fine. I haven't done one of these in a while. Actually, I have. I've been doing them as part of the Unpops Everyday podcast. But as it turned out, doing solo podcasts and then doing podcasts with a group of people turned those into two very different podcasts. And since I used to do these solo podcasts under a much cooler name, Being in Broad Daylight, which is objectively a better name than Unpops Every Day, which is now a weekly podcast, which makes the name cool again. But in Broad Daylight, get the fuck out of here. That's an amazing title. What is going on? If you've never listened to a single episode of this podcast, that's probably good because all of the older episodes will be a little bit different than what they're going to be going forward. Because before, I would just focus on one topic per episode. And boy, does that make it hard to drag the subject matter out into an entire episode. So instead, on this podcast, I'm just going to be talking about some seemingly very important news stories that just seem like they should be getting a little more attention. Don't we also do that on Unpops Every Day? No, we talk about bullshit news stories on Unpops Every Day. That's what makes that podcast such a breath of fresh air on this network. But hey, that doesn't mean we're going to dig right into politics on this episode. Let's talk about something most of you like even less. Sports! I had big plans to record most of this episode before the Super Bowl and then watch the Super Bowl. And then I was going to come back and record the last part of this episode after I had formed all of my thoughts on the game and all of the exciting happenings, and all the fun and wacky commercials we got to watch. And here's the thing. There wasn't any of that. It was more like super bore. (laughs) That joke always kills in this room when there's no one here. But uh, yeah, that was the most boring fucking Super Bowl I've ever seen in my life. I think it ended 13-3, to something along those lines. There was one touchdown. I believe. Yes, that's correct. It was a very not memorable game. And I'm ve- I'm I'm glad I didn't end this episode talking about it because man was it a chore. The the fucking commercials were boring. When are Super Bowl commercials boring? Every Super Bowl commercial was trash. There was maybe one or two good ones, but then it was shit like Zoe Kravitz from Michelob Ultra. Zoe Kravitz doesn't drink beer. Get the fuck out of here. And if she does, it's definitely not Michelob Ultra, but it was cool that it was like an ASMR commercial. Uh, I thought that was a, a quirky little thing, but goddamn, there were just not good commercials. It was not good football. The Patriots won, which normally I would hate, but this year I was fine with it because the Rams were a bunch of frauds. But yeah, really uneventful Super Bowl happenings this year. 
So I think the most interesting thing that happened was that I learned I don't like beer if it doesn't have corn syrup in it. And that's not to say I did a lot of drinking during the Super Bowl. Thank God I did not uh, decide to start drinking again just to watch the Super Bowl because it would not have been worth it. But there were a bunch of commercials about how Bud Light is the only beer not brewed with corn syrup. Or at least among Miller Light and Coors Light, the big three, the water beers. Bud Light's the only one that doesn't have corn syrup in it. And I don't know. I guess that explains it. I guess that's why Bud Light is my least favorite beer. So I learned that from watching the Super Bowl. And uh, beyond that, not very interesting. I can't stress that enough by saying not very interesting over and over again. We should probably just move on and talk about some news, shall we? How about the fact that Trump won't stop meeting with Vladimir Putin while no one else is around? It's not a thing we want. If really, we don't want our president meeting with any world leader without someone there to know what they were talking about. That's kind of how we dictate our foreign policy. We, we sort of base that on how our president interacts with other world leaders. Did they fight? If so, we might have some conflicts on the world stage. If they got along pretty well, maybe it was fine. What did they talk about? We want to know that, but we don't get to know any of that when Trump talks to Putin. Nothing strange about that, America. This most recent meeting, well, first of all, I should mention, if you want to read more about this, check out the article, Trump met Putin without staff or note takers present again on Vox.com by Alex Warlord Ward. <laughs> Trump spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin during last, numbers, during last November's G20 summit in Argentina without a U.S. official present to take notes. That's the premise of this article. Melania was there. Maybe she took notes. But she didn't take notes, because if there were notes, Trump would have seized them, like he did last time he met with Putin. But we'll get to that. And the White House, they had already acknowledged before that Putin and Trump had this informal meeting, but they didn't disclose that there were no other administration officials there. And again, that's a pretty big deal. Putin had someone there, his translator. No one knows if that person wrote anything down, though. And this isn't the first time Trump and Putin have done this. During the G20 meeting in Germany in July 2017, Trump got up from his seat during a dinner in order to sit next to Putin, because Putin is his boyfriend. And Putin had a translator there also. Trump, on the other hand, no other administration officials or government staff of any sort to sit there and just, you know, listen in. See what Trump and Putin are talking about. The White House initially didn't even reveal that meeting, and it came not long after Trump just basically told the world that Putin told him that Russia didn't interfere in our election in 2016. So he believes Putin, and all of our intelligence agents and agencies should just shut up, I guess. That is how it seemed. Like, I don't know why we have... Why do we have intelligence officials anymore? Like, why are that when we shut the government down, why were they still working? Because they're not being used whatsoever. Our intelligence community in this country right now is like a fucking treadmill you bought 
as a New Year's resolution, and now there's just clothes hanging on it. We might as well sell it to someone who will put it to good use, because we certainly are not. And that's all because of Trump. There's no other reason. He goes by his gut, and his gut is telling him he should have secret meetings with Vladimir Putin. And even when he does have someone there when he meets with Putin, there was a meeting in 2017. He told his translator after the meeting to not share details with any of his staff. Why the fuck would you not want to share details of a meeting with a world leader with the rest of your staff? That is not how the office of the president is supposed to run. And Trump actually seized the notes that were taken during that meeting. Is that alone not a crime of some sort? Like, if you work for a a government-related company, you have to keep every fucking official document and communication that goes in and out of that building for, like, 10 years. Why, Why are we not holding the president to that same standard. I'm sure there's a a perfectly valid reason for it, that we're all just too dumb to understand. But I'm sure it's nothing. I'm sure it's it's, uh, nothing to worry about, Uh, because it's not like anything else concerning is happening between us and Russia right now, except for the fact that we just pulled out of the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. You know, I mean, that's probably just because we're, again, we're getting along so well with Russia. Why do we even need to have our nuclear weapons stockpiles written down on paper? I think it's we can just go on the honor system by this point. But whatever the reason, and I mean, the, the short reason is we claim Russia is not abiding by the treaty. I'm sure we're not either. Like, maybe it's just a, a paper thing that no one follows anyway, and pulling out of it is fine. But given the tensions we have around Russia right now, it's it feels like cause for concern. We're going to do a deeper dive into that 1987 treaty and some of the ramifications of pulling out of it and some of the history behind how it happened on an upcoming episode of Good Luck America, a politics and news podcast. Or is it a news and politics podcast? Listen to it and find out. In the meantime, here's a fun detail about us pulling out of that nuclear treaty. Right before we made that announcement, the National Nuclear Security Administration Agency, NINSA, announced that the U.S. has begun manufacturing new low-yield nuclear weapons. This weapon is called the W-76-2 And the first batch is set to be delivered to the U.S. military by October 2019. Yay! More nuclear warheads. That is what we need. This new warhead will give Trump a little more flexibility to drop smaller bombs on nations that act up, as opposed to dropping world-ending bombs on nations that act up. That's got to make everyone feel better, right? Trump has a little more flexibility with nuclear weapons. What could go wrong? The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, that's the acronym they go by, but apparently they cannot because we still have a shit ton of nuclear weapons. But they wrote on Twitter that the availability of such a weapon will make nuclear war even more likely than it has been under President Donald Trump. Well, yeah, we know that. We we understand that, ICANN. Now, can you stop him? please. That's what we're leaning on you for now. And our argument for having these weapons 
is that just by having them, it will make our adversaries less likely to launch nuclear weapons of their own, which I hope that's true. What do I know? I'm not a nuclear missile treaty expert. I just read articles and tell you my thoughts on them. But uh, we are talking about a president who, in an official meeting where notes were allowed to be taken, of all the meetings to let someone take notes or record things, remember there was that meeting not too long ago, maybe a year or two ago, where uh, who knows what country we were talking about, but Trump's question was, why can't we use our nuclear weapons? That's how Trump thinks about nu- just, well, they're there. Why don't we, why don't we use them? Because that's a last resort, sir. But not anymore. Now we have these smaller weapons that we can just drop all over the fucking place. And don't worry, they're only uh, expected to be about five kilotons of TNT. A third of the power of the bomb the U.S. launched at Hiroshima in 1945. And that place still exists. So maybe we can drop bombs. We haven't tried it in a while. Maybe the process is more refined now. But uh, yeah, a third of the power of the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima, that feels like still a pretty big bomb, if I'm being completely honest. thats, that's I wouldn't want it dropped on my home or city or state or country, but at least we have a bunch of them now that we can drop on other countries and no treaty binding us to a promise to not build more of them. So, you know bringing jobs back to America. Uh, If you want to read more about it, the article is called U.S. Nuclear Weapons. First low-yield warheads roll off the production line on TheGuardian.com by Julian Borge, your old Jay Borge, putting in work. And meanwhile, while we're buddying up with Russia, but also pulling out of treaties with Russia, having secret meetings with the, the Russian president and our president, Russia is working with Iran to help them get around U.S. sanctions. Exactly the kind of thing, I believe, we just arrested the CEO of a major Chinese smartphone manufacturer over. Remember that? She was arrested in Canada. They want to extradite her to the United States. The exact thing she is charged with is helping Iran launder money to get around U.S. sanctions. Meanwhile, Russia is signing official agreements in public with Iran to help them get around U.S. sanctions, and we haven't said a single word. I wonder what that is all about. This article, it's called Iran Inches Closer to Unveiling State-Backed Cryptocurrency on aljazeera.com by Maziar Modamedi. His friends call him the medicine man. And this has actually come up on an episode of What in the World. I know we talked about it on an episode of Unpops at one point. The way the oil market works is oil is priced in U.S. dollars, meaning to buy and sell oil on the open market, you have to do it in U.S. dollars. And if you're a big oil producer that the U.S. has put sanctions on, like Iran or Venezuela, that means you can't go out on the open market and sell your shit. And by shit, I mean oil. But what we talked about before on Unpops is that China has been making deals with places like Venezuela that have a lot of oil and places in Africa like the 
Democratic Republic of Congo and I think maybe South Sudan areas that have a lot of precious metals that go into making smartphones and things. And China has been striking deals with all of these countries in the hopes of setting up basically an oil market that would be backed by their currency instead of ours. And to do that, they need a lot of oil and a lot of natural resources. And when it's not something like that, what we're seeing is countries like Iran and Venezuela setting up cryptocurrency and trying to use that to get around sanctions put in place by the United States. And Iran, the the details of their cryptocurrency were revealed last summer after the Trump administration started reimposing sanctions over alleged malign activities. You know, not abiding by that nuclear deal that everyone else in the entire world says they are abiding by. Some of Iran's banks were barred from SWIFT, which is the Belgian-based company that facilitates cross-border payments. If you've ever been to a bank, you've probably seen a SWIFT sign before. Don't act like you haven't. Countries that are excluded from SWIFT cannot pay for imports and cannot receive payment for exports. That really cramps your lifestyle. If you're trying to live it up on the open oil market and you you can't even send money outside your borders, I'm sure I don't have to explain why that would be a problem. So what countries are doing is trying to come up with alternatives. And while this cryptocurrency wouldn't directly facilitate payments between Iran and other countries, it could lay the groundwork for them to join a blockchain-based international payment system that could emerge as an alternative to SWIFT. That is a thing that's been in the works for a while, as we mentioned before. But on November 5th, the day the second round of U.S. sanctions came into effect, Iran announced they'd already started working on an alternative to SWIFT. And here's where Russia comes in. During the Chainpoint 18 conference in Yerevan, Armenia, was anyone there? It was fucking wild. Uh, On November 14th, Iran signed a trilateral blockchain cooperation agreement with Russia and Armenia. Following the finalization of the agreement, the Russian signatory Yuri Propachkin said, according to our information, an active development of an Iranian version of SWIFT is currently underway. Vladimir Putin later said that Russia is actively working with partners to establish financial systems that are fully independent of SWIFT without naming the partner countries. So while Trump is doing everything in his power to make as nice as possible with Russia, Russia is actively working on a means to not only cut the United States out of the oil market, at least among some of the bigger oil producing countries, but also it would allow countries to just kind of get around sanctions when we put sanctions in place. And the thing about sanctions is they're our last step before war. So good thing we have all those small yield nuclear weapons that we can just drop on small parts of a country. We'll call them sanction bombs. That's what they'll be called because now that we can't put sanctions on people because everyone's fucking with the crypto, now we got to drop the low yield nuclear weapons. Thanks, Obama. Okay, here is a story that should make you angry no matter what side of the political spectrum you you find yourself on 
I know it won't make you angry if you're on one particular side, but it should. Let's go through it. This is from an article on CNN called Exclusive White House Preparing Draft National Emergency Order Has Identified $7 billion for Wall on CNN.com by Intercontinental Tag Team Champions Priscilla Alvarez and Tammy Kupperman. And it's basically an article about Trump's consistent threats to declare a national emergency to build a wall. And this is a sentence from that draft. The massive amount of aliens who unlawfully enter the United States each day is a direct threat to the safety and security of our nation and constitutes a national emergency. Now, therefore, I, Donald J. Trump, by the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including the National Emergencies Act, hereby declare that a national emergency exists at the southern border of the United States. First of all, I told you he was going to declare a national emergency to fucking build that wall. But according to the options being considered, the administration could pull $681 million from Treasury forfeiture funds, $3.6 billion in military construction, $3 billion in Pentagon Civil Works funds, and $200 million in Department of Homeland Security funds. And basically, this is all money that has been earmarked for certain departments, but they haven't set up any contracts to spend it. So you snooze, you lose, motherfuckers. And the part I find most interesting in where he's pulling this money from is the civil works funds, because civil works, that involves infrastructure, you know, the bones of our country, the bridges that sometimes collapse in Minneapolis. If we're talking about an actual threat to American citizens and their safety, let's talk about infrastructure for a second. Here's some stats. The U.S. has 614,387 bridges, almost 4 in 10 of which are 50 years or older. 9% of these bridges were structurally deficient in 2016, and there were 188 million trips across a structurally deficient bridge each day. Two out of five miles of America's urban interstates are congested. In 2014, Americans spent 6.9 billion hours in traffic, costing the country $160 billion in wasted time and fuel. One out of every five miles of highway pavement is in poor condition. After years of decline, traffic fatalities increased by 7% from 2014 to 2015, In 2016, U.S. roads carried people and goods over 3 trillion miles, the equivalent of 300 round trips between Earth and Pluto. The U.S. needs to spend $420 billion to repair existing highways and $123 billion to repair bridges. And all of that comes from the American Society of Civil Engineers 2017 Infrastructure Report Card. So I doubt anyone listening to this does, but don't believe for a second that that wall is about the safety of Americans. If we were that concerned about the safety of Americans, we wouldn't be taking money from the $420 billion that we need to repair our roads and bridges and putting it a, toward a wall that 
is not at all going to stop those 85% of illegal drugs that come in through legal ports of entry, as opposed to being catapulted over walls. Also, in this same order, they make it pretty clear that some of the land that this wall is going to have to go through, there's people living there, and those people live in houses that they presumably will want to keep. And don't worry, Customs and Border Protection has said that it would consider eminent domain in the future. Here's a quote. The government will attempt to negotiate an offer to sell before moving forward with exercising eminent domain. However, if the government and landowner are unable to reach a negotiated sale, or if the government is unable to obtain clean title, the government will need to file an eminent domain action. And if you don't know what eminent domain means, it means they just take your shit. And there's not anything you can say about it. They also mentioned that to facilitate this process and expedite it, environmental reviews can be skipped, and the Department of Homeland Security can use waivers to bypass contracting laws. That is all in the draft of this executive order that they're putting out. It'll likely be challenged in court if they do issue it, and good thing we're not stacking the Supreme Court with a bunch of judges who are deferential to president trump because that would that 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 could just spell disaster for so so many years into the future but we'll see what happens i feel like the national emergency thing is more likely than trump shutting the government down again i hope he doesn't shut the government down again i hope he just doesn't do i hope he doesn't accomplish any of his fucking crazy goals but it's february now day after valentine's day we'll know if the government is shut down again, or if Trump is just going to issue an executive order and start taking people's houses. Buckle up, El Paso. Speaking of the government shutdown, there is a word coming out that a lot of human rights agencies around the world consider what happened to immigrants and asylum seekers during the government shutdown to be kind of a human rights violation. This is from an article on Salon.com. Trump shutdown was exponential human rights violation against immigrants and asylum seekers by Matthew the Disposa Rosa. Basically, as a result of the shutdown, thousands of court hearings for immigrants were canceled. Every week of the shutdown added 20,000 cancellations to the existing backlog. Immigration judges were furloughed or forced to work without pay. Lawyers were meeting filing deadlines, even though the courts could not accept them. Immigrants were showing up in court either because they didn't know about the shutdown or they were afraid of being punished for missing their hearings. And this is a quote. What we know is that undocumented Americans have been conflated with asylum seekers who've been conflated with refugees. We are, unfortunately, seeing a challenge of two types, a system that was already overburdened and that did not have enough immigration judges has seen an additional push and the shutdown has had an extraordinary impact on these courts. That's Ashley Houghton, tactical campaigns manager at Amnesty International USA. What a cool job title, Ashley. My God. And this is another quote. We're also seeing a brand new stay in Mexico plan where immigrants and asylum seekers are going to be deported to Mexico while their case is being heard. What you're seeing is this exponential human rights violation where people are not just not having their cases being heard in the United States, but in some cases, no matter whether or not their case has merit, 
They are sent to Mexico to await their asylum case to be heard. It doesn't matter in the administration's mind who these people are. I think the administration has previously won political points by framing all immigrants as somehow not deserving of dignity, fairness, and respect, and arguing that they're all somehow dangerous. That is another quote from Ashley Houghton. Did anyone hear about the deporting people back to Mexico thing? It's exactly as described in that quote. If you're here seeking asylum, while your asylum claim is being worked out, for your own safety, you have to go live in Mexico. Because you know how safe Mexico is. Notorious for its safety. But that's that's the, the Trump administration excuse for why people seeking asylum have to go back to Mexico. And not even back to Mexico, because most of these people are not coming from Mexico. They're coming from Central and South America. They just have to cross through Mexico to get here. But apparently there's an old law somewhere on the books that says if someone crosses the U.S. border illegally... We can deport them back to the country that they crossed over from. So that's what we're doing. And we're arguing that it's to keep people safe. And my question would be, if it's not safe for immigrants in the United States right now, whose fucking fault is that? That feels like a Trump administration issue. And I don't think the solution lies in deporting people to Mexico. It might lie with fixing your shit. Not you listening to this. I'm talking to the Trump administration, who is not listening to this. At least I hope not. I mean, I'm sure there's someone somewhere at some fucking NSA offshoot that has been assigned to keep tabs on me. But I'm pretty transparent, just like the president you're serving right now. We all know what everyone's doing, and no one's doing anything about it. (laughs) Hey, let's take a break. And hey, we're back. All right. Let's move on from Trump and just talk about some regular garden variety conservative xenophobes like the two state politicians in Indiana who want to require passing a citizenship test as part of graduating from high school. Article is called Indiana Students Would Take a Citizenship Test as a Graduation Requirement Under a New Bill on Bustle.com. By Morgan Wilford Brindley. Basically, a bill just passed the Indiana Senate would require all students to pass the U.S. citizenship exam, usually administered to immigrants in order to graduate from high school. I am going to, with, I'll say, 85% certainty, tell you that I probably could not pass the citizenship test right now. And most of you listening to this probably couldn't either because you're already citizens and you don't have to. But teachers are underpaid and burdened enough with mandatory testing that they don't really need to be bothered with shit like this, especially when it's for really fucking petty reasons. This is being introduced by, or it was introduced by Republican state senators Dennis Cruz and Jeff Ratz. They proposed the legislation after growing frustrated with high schoolers' knowledge of government and the legislative process. Here's a quote. Constituents don't know that we're state senators. We don't belong in Washington, D.C. I'm not being critical of them. They just don't understand the system. That is Jeff Ratz's petty ass. Obviously, this motherfucker went to a high school and some fucking high school student said something about him being in Washington, D.C., 
and he got all indignant on some don't you fucking know who Jeff Ratz is, son? Bullshit. And now we have a fucking law in Indiana that you have to pass a citizenship test to graduate from high school. You pass a citizenship test by being fucking born here, for one thing, so you can kick everyone who that applies to right off that list of people needing to be uh, needing to pass a goddamn citizenship test before they graduate high school, and especially if this is your fucking reasoning. Maybe if they were trying out for a reality show like America's Next Best Citizen or some shit like that, you could justify it. But this is just adding another layer of work to an already overworked group of teachers, to students who already have enough to worry about fucking dodging bullets in their classroom, especially in a state with some of the most lax gun laws in the entire nation. That is how Chicago gets a lot of their guns from Indiana. But hey, let's definitely worry about making sure students pass a fucking citizenship exam, you goddamn boobs. It's called Senate Bill 132, passed by a 31 to 17 vote. Fuck all 31 of you. Students would be required to pass the test by getting at least 60 out of 100 questions correct. I had this conversation. We were about to record a podcast, and we got to talking about how our grades worked in school. Where you went was a 60 or higher passing? Because for me, it was 69. (laughs) But seriously, it was you had to get a 69 or higher, or you got an F. And I think a B was 85 to like 80, and a C was 80 to 75, something like that. I think they just did the 69 thing to be funny, because it could have been like 70 and above. But did anyone else have that, where 60 out of 100 was actually passing, and a 90 was a B? You fucking slackers. Did you did you have to, did, did you get that? I, I actually don't know how it would make that much of a difference in terms of how difficult or not difficult school would be. But still, you millennials with your six, 60 and above, you know, we pat, now we're citizens now, according to Denver, because we fucking. Actually, I don't give a shit. I just thought it was really interesting that apparently some school districts work on a, gra- a different grading system. That seems uniform and correct and exactly what we should, do, should be doing uh, in schools across the nation. You don't want to standardize that. I mean, you probably don't. Standardized tests are kind of bullshit. And that's the other thing about this. Some people are just bad at taking tests, man. If you fail this test, according to this law, you will not get your high school diploma. Even if you've satisfied all the other requirements, you won't get your high school diploma, which is some insane bullshit that is happening in Indiana, a place full of insane bullshit. And it still has to pass the House in Indiana, but it's also a Republican-controlled House. It'll pass. And at that point, the bill goes into effect at the beginning of the 2020 school year, just in time for Trump's re-election campaign. Ugh. I just realized I said Denver in the midst of that rant about the last topic. I don't know if there's a Denver, Indiana, but if there is, it's probably trash. But... I was just thinking ahead to this next story, which is also some immigration-related bullshit. This is the name of the article. Denver Public Schools Threatened to Report Striking Teachers on Visas to Immigration Authorities Now Apologizes. 
on Newsweek.com by Daniel Moritz Rabson. I don't have a nickname for him. I'm sorry. But in late January, the Denver Classroom Teachers Association voted to begin a district-wide walkout to secure better pay for educators. That's a thing that is happening all across the country right now, including right here in Los Angeles. It happened not too long ago. I believe everyone's back to work in L.A., but I could be wrong. If there's any news I don't pay attention to, it's my local news, because in L.A., it's all car chases. But not long after this walkout was announced, one area school received a letter from the district saying that teachers on H or J visas that would choose to strike would be reported to Immigration and the U.S. Department of State. It stated that if teachers have a pending case and choose to strike, this could impact the decision on the case. And obviously, people were a little bothered by the school district threatening teachers with, I mean, let's be honest, they're threatening them with deportation if they go on strike. That is a little heavy-handed. Not that we aren't living in an era of nothing but heavy-handed tactics towards strikers and workers. That is the norm in this country, and it has been for a long time. Thank you, Ronald Reagan, worst American president of all time. But uh, this is a quote. The fact that the district thought this was okay was extremely scary. That's Marisol Calderon. She's a local teacher. Employees at her school saw the letter including one Venezuelan who is seeking asylum, I wonder why, and another who is about to become a U.S. citizen. This is District Spokesman Will Jones. An incorrect communication was provided by a DPS employee regarding our educators on H-1B and J-1 visas. And the district said the error was the result of a misinterpretation of the information that we received from our immigration firm And the communication was in no way intended to cause fear for our educators on visas. Bullshit. You were trying to scare people into not walking out. And that is some despicable shit to do, especially when it comes to immigration and especially right now in this country. To be that fucking person to go, well, you know, this is Trump's America. So if you strike, we're just going to fucking 21 Savage you out of the country. Did you hear that shit? Fucking 21 Savage, the slick Rick of his generation getting deported to England. Crazy times. But I feel like this quote where they say it was the result of a misinterpretation of the information that they received from their immigration firm. Well, well, what information? Why were you talking to your immigration firm about a strike? If it wasn't because you were asking them, could you threaten to have people who strike deported? What else did you have to ask? What questions did you have? That's what I would like to know about this story. What was the fucking question that you sent to your immigration firm? Why do you have an immigration firm? What the fuck is that for? Did you have an immigration firm before the strike? Or did you hire an immigration firm and ask them this question? And they said, yes, of course you can report these people to immigration if they walk out. And I... I don't doubt that they were told they could do that. I don't doubt it's probably legal. Fucking South by Southwest did it. They were sending letters to performers before the last South by Southwest that if they performed on other shows, which is a violation of South by Southwest terms, that if they performed on other other shows during the festival and they were in the country on visas, 
that South by Southwest would notify immigration authorities. Stop fucking threatening that. I don't know why we aren't boycotting South by Southwest forever and ever and ever after they pulled that shit. But I'll tell you this. I'm not fucking going to school in Denver anytime soon. That's a boycott I can live with. I probably won't go to South by Southwest anytime soon either. I've never been. I'm not a crowds guy. I just, they not for me. Not for me at all. All right, let's change gears once again and talk about Coke. Not cocaine, Coca-Cola. Conspicuously absent from this year's Super Bowl, which took place in Atlanta. Lots of Pepsi ads, not a lot of Coke ads. But do they really need them anymore? Who knows? Anyway, here's the title of the article. Coca-Cola tried to influence CDC on research and policy. New report states by Jesse Chase, no nickname required Lubitz on Politico.com. And what happened is someone made a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests for emails between Coca-Cola and the CDC. And they got something like 295 pages of documents back that show what appear to be attempts to leverage personal relationships at the CDC to further Coca-Cola's goals at the expense of the health of the population, if you can believe that. Coca-Cola is usually such a reputable place. Remember that thing I said about unions in this country? They kill people who form unions in Central and South America. Look it up. I wrote an article about it on a website that shall remain nameless. But these leaked emails have raised questions about whether organizations like the CDC should refrain from engaging in partnerships where there is a potential conflict of interest. And yeah, Why isn't that already a law? Why are we letting Coke talk to the CDC at all? And it's not just that they're talking to them. They have formed bonds with people at the CDC who help Coke achieve their dastardly mission around the globe, which is to give us all diabetes. Based on these email exchanges, at least one visit was arranged for CDC staff to Coca-Cola's headquarters. Another email exchange showed that former Coca-Cola executive Alex Malaspina wrote to former CDC official Dr. Barbara Bowman about concerns that the World Health Organization's then-director general Dr. Margaret Chan backed restrictions on the consumption of sugary soft drinks, such as in the form of soda taxes. This is a quote from that email. Any ideas on how to have a conversation with WHO? Now... They do not want to work with industry. Who finds all the new drugs? Not WHO, but industry. She is influenced by the Chinese government and is against the U.S. Something must be done. And Dr. Barbara Bowman responded and actually gave them some tips on who they can talk to to get the World Health Organization to play ball when it comes to the idea that, hey, sugary drinks don't make you fat. You make you fat. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, Bowman is the former director of the CDC's Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention. So if she knows anything about why you shouldn't drink sodas that make you obese, it's her. But nevertheless, she suggested some contacts for this guy, including Bill Gates. So maybe she was just trolling him. Because that's what I would say if I got that email from someone. Like, I don't know, fucking ask Bill Gates. It's the World Health Organization, dude. Might as well be asking me about NASA. And this is a thing that's been going on with the soda industry 
Coke, Pepsi, both, for a long time, where they form these relationships with scientists, lobbyists, researchers, everyone. And they just exert their influence on them. At one point, Coca-Cola and Pepsi sponsored at least 96 national health organizations at the same time they were lobbying against public health bills intended to reduce how many sugary sodas people drink. That's a conflict of interest. They are the ones who stand to gain the most from these organizations not doing their job properly. And Coke is there at every step to make sure that they don't do their job properly. It's kind of a fucking scandal. And it's a good example of just how deep corporate influence is in this country. We don't we don't run this country. The, the corporations do. And I don't know. Does that make you feel better? Does it feel better knowing none of this matters? Like, who cares who the president is at the end of the day? If fucking Pfizer wants Justin Trudeau to start deporting people, he'll probably do it. I know that's Canada, but they're basically us. And that was the name that came to mind. But corporate influence, I think, is probably the biggest problem in this country. If we could get that out of our political system, I think it would be a whole new world. We'll never fucking know because it's not going to happen. But hey, it would be interesting to see how it worked. And this goes beyond the United States. They do this just like tobacco companies did. When public favor turned against tobacco companies in the United States, they just started marketing their shit all around the world, sometimes to fucking kids. I don't have a source link written on my hand, but if you Google tobacco companies Asia, I'm sure you'll get some articles about the inroads they've made with the youth of Asia when it comes to getting those young lads smoking. According to Susan Greenhall, a research professor of Chinese society at Harvard University, she authored two separate papers this month that detail how Coca-Cola shaped policy and research in China, which is now Coke's third largest market by volume. She found that Coca-Cola may have worked through the industry-funded nonprofit International Life Sciences Institute to encourage an emphasis on links between exercise and obesity over links between diet and obesity. And they, working through a nonprofit, managed to actually redirect China's science and policy on obesity and related chronic diseases to align with Koch's position that when it comes to obesity, it's physical activity and not food and drink that matter, which is a position most experts vehemently disagree with. And this article also brings up the point that in a lot of countries, Coke is more readily available than water. One of the people quoted is a woman named Laura Miebert. She's an assistant professor of social science at Kettering University in Michigan. And she conducted research in a town in Mexico where that was the case. But she also brings up her own state, Michigan. You can definitely find clean Coca-Cola more readily available than you will clean drinking water in places like Flint, where I think still their their water is kind of an undrinkable nightmare. So I feel like if, if that had been fixed, it would have been big news. And the fact that we're not hearing about it much anymore tells you that it's uh, probably still going on. And one thing she pointed out is that in this town in Mexico, residents paid really high prices for water, but the town gave the local Coca-Cola plant a discount on their water. Because if anyone needs a break in life, it's Coca-Cola, obviously. 
And she compared that to Flint, which is a really good comparison. I know no one wants to do it, but you should go watch Fahrenheit 11.9. I understand the left has sort of turned on Michael Moore, I guess. I don't, I, I think that's, that feels like the case. And you'll understand why if, if you watch Fahrenheit 11.9. It does not, it's, it's very much about the Flint water crisis. I mean, it's about Trump too, but it spends a lot of time on what's happening with the water in Flint. And one of the things that gets brought up is not long after they switched over to the water that's making everyone sick, that water was also corroding car parts at the GM plant. So the city switched GM back to the safe water, but the citizens are still drinking the shitty water because they're not a GM plant. They're just a bunch of poor and middle class people that the government doesn't give a shit about because that local government was corrupt as fuck and they stood to make money by switching the water over and by keeping it that way and that i I feel like i deviated a bit from the the coca-cola thing hey can i run a theory by you you're not gonna stop me i can't hear anything you're saying i know how we fix the problem with coke it's gonna impact their sales but it will also significantly reduce soda consumption especially at home you ready Only available in single cans. No six-packs, no 12-packs, no 24-packs, no two-liter bottles, no 24-ounce bottles. Individual 12-ounce cans. Because the thing about soda, a good deal on soda is the most inconvenient deal you can possibly have. Because, yeah, now you have 80 fucking Barks root beers at home, but you also had to carry 80 fucking Barks root beers home. And that is a task. Now imagine if you had to carry them all separate and individual and just falling all over the fucking place. Soda consumption would plummet in this country. Vote for me in your next election. All right, let's take a break. And then we will finish this shit up. And we're back. Hey, here's a question. Is Tulsi Gabbard's presidential campaign still a thing? Because it shouldn't be. It, it should not be. If you want a really good rundown of the reasons why that's the case, I don't remember what website it's on, but just Google the phrase Tulsi Gabbard is not your friend and you will find a fantastic article that runs through all of her transgressions from the past that should make you question her motives as a presidential candidate. But I think the one that is probably the most troubling is her support for India's prime minister. He's a guy named Narendra Modi, and he is a fucking fascist tyrant. To give you just one example of the kind of shit he's getting up to in India, here's an article. Indian politician jailed for Facebook post on PM Narendra Modi. Also on aljazeera.com by some unnamed writer. And this guy's name is Satyaraj Balu. He is a member of a local pro-Tamil party. He was arrested on Saturday after he posted a morphed picture, I'm assuming that means photoshopped, of Modi with a begging bowl a day ahead of the prime minister's visit to the southern state of Tamil Nadu. He was charged with intent to disrupt the peace and to create ill will between the classes after an official complaint was made by local members of Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. They'll come up in a second. And this is just the latest example of a very stringent crackdown on free speech in India, which is coming in the wake of a lot of extremist killings in India, 
A lot of Muslims are being targeted in India. There's a lot of fake news that is being spread in India that is leading to the attacks of Muslims in India. It is a very nationalistic place right now with a very nationalistic leader in charge. Some of the other things, just in in the way of unwarranted arrests that have happened in India, there were more than a dozen similar arrests last year, for one thing. A television reporter is in jail in the northeastern state of Manipur for alleged posts that also criticize Modi and the state's chief minister, Biren Singh. Okay, no, I I thought this was going to be a difficult name, but I got it. Kishora Chandra Wankum was was arrested in December under a law that allows authorities to detain anyone for up to a year without trial. He had accused Singh of promoting right-wing Hindu ideology and called him a puppet of Modi and of the Rashtriya Swayam Savak Sang, RSS. The same thing that delivers podcasts to your various devices. And they are a Hindu supremacist group. Police in September charged the main opposition Congress party's social media chief with sedition after she tweeted a meme that showed an altered image of Modi's statue with a placard emblazoned with thief. Reminder, this is the world's largest democracy, the biggest in all the globe. And this is the the kind of shit that's happening over there. And meanwhile, here is a quote from Tulsi Gabbard about Narendra Modi. Granted, it's in 2014, but her support from his party in this country has not waned. And there are no indications that she has spoken out against his policies or this party or the things that are happening in India. And here's a quote from her in 2014. He is a leader whose example and dedication to the people he serves should be an inspiration to elected officials everywhere. No, they should not. He is a nationalist fuckstick who should be out of office immediately. And I don't know. I get that we're supposed to let our politicians evolve and things like that. I don't know why I say we're supposed to. We don't let that happen, but it's an idea that's been floated. But I just, no matter how progressive she might sell herself as now, I just feel like this really isn't the time to roll the dice on another potential nationalist as our president. That's all. There's just some past indiscretions that are a little too big to ignore. And effusive support for fascist leaders in other countries is one of them. Granted, it's a thing you have to do to be president. There are so many dictators in the world right now that we just love. But still, we found out about this one a little too early. Sorry, Tulsi. All right, let's talk about this last story, and then I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. Proud Boy Threatens Portland Mayor in Facebook Video. That's the name of the article on TheHill.com by Avery Cannonball Annapal. And this is a thing we sort of, we don't talk about this particular story, but this week on the Unpopular Opinion podcast, we are mining the comedy gold that is right-wing extremist violence in the United States with my co-host Randall Maynard, special guest Matt Lieb, and comedian J.P. Brown making his first appearance on the show. And that's the topic, is right-wing extremist violence. And I think this falls under that category. I've People have reached out to me about doing a more 
in-depth episode about what's happening in Portland, and I really need to, because it, it feels like that's sort of ground zero for the progressives versus the fucking alt-right or whatever they're calling themselves there now proud boys the proud boy what a fucking terrible name god damn but uh it really feels like shit is going down in portland especially when you're threatening the mayor i feel like if i threatened the mayor of la on this podcast someone would have some shit to say about it but a far-right activist reportedly posted a video on Facebook threatening Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler earlier this week. Reggie Axtell, granted, cool name, member of the Proud Boys, said in the video that Wheeler's days are fucking numbered. I promise you this, Ted Wheeler. I'm coming for you, you little punk. And here's the thing. Axtell's people say he meant I'm coming for you as in I'm coming for your job. I'm not coming for you in a violence way. But... No one fucking says it that way. If you're coming for someone's job, you tell a person, I'm going to get you fired. I'll see to it that you lose your job. You'll never work another mayor job in this town again. You say something like that. You don't say, I'm fucking coming for you, you little punk. I mean, you do. That's what you say on the video. But no one's going to believe your excuse, especially not when it's coming from the Proud Boys. Axtell also said... In the video that he would, quote, unmask every Antifa son of a bitch that I come across. That's another thing that's happening in Portland right now. This far-right group called Patriot Prayer. Again, terrible fucking name. They've started a demasking campaign to reveal the identities of the anti-fascist counter-protesters by removing their masks and taking their photo. Who's going to lose their job over fighting Nazis? I feel like that's just not going to work. I'd promote a motherfucker. We'll look into more about what's happening in Portland at some point. In the meantime, damn, I've been recording for a long time. Thank you for listening to the return episode of In Broad Daylight. I'll be back on Monday. Just a reminder, you can get an extended version of this episode with more stories. And it's completely ad-free if you subscribe on Patreon. And you get a whole bunch of other stuff when you subscribe on Patreon. I just put a uh, really short, short episode thing up on the main Unpops podcast feed about all of the new happenings and comings and goings with the Unpops network schedule and the Patreon. We got so much exciting stuff in the works, baby. You don't even know. I mean, you don't know because I just told you that you can go out there and listen to all that. So unless you're like really on top of what's happening on the patreon you have no idea but uh so go listen to that subscribe on patreon come to the next unpop stand-up show february 23rd at the hollywood hotel at 9 p.m i'll be there quincy will be there i think carrie martin is gonna be there fucking tom ryman rivers langley alex schmidt tom goss chris crittenden jen sturger i believe it's gonna be a packed house and more names to be announced soon. So come out to that. All right. I'm going to go eat the rest of my Indian food that I ordered during that boring-ass Super Bowl. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. <laughs>